Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Ned Baker, a filmmaker and a podcaster. We're here to speak with you about the events of that night 40 years ago. And I'm Caroline Sita, and I'm the new Loomis. The way this podcast works is that Caroline and I take turns curating a five-film miniseries starring an actor we love. We have been discussing Jamie Lee Curtis now for four weeks, four episodes ago on a dark and stormy night. We recorded an episode about the 1978 iconic slasher film, Halloween. And now that episode has come back to haunt us. We are retracing our steps and recording an episode about the brand new, well, pretty new, 2018 Halloween. Not the other one, the new one. So if you want to listen to our first episode on Halloween 1978, it's our Jamie Lee Curtis part one. This is our Jamie Lee Curtis part five. We are bringing it full circle, bringing it home, wrapping up our Jamie Lee Curtis series. And I'm really excited to do it. And partially, I'm really excited to do it because we are joined today to get into the Michael Myers of it all by the host of the Happy Harvest Horror Show, Brian Muldoon. Welcome, Brian. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Brian, we're so excited to have you. We really needed... So I'm bringing the perspective of a horror novice. Ned Mm -hmm. is bringing the perspective of a horror fan. And you're bringing the perspective... Of someone who literally hosts a podcast about horror-related <laughs> things. Horror and Halloween and just anything spooky, yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's a, it is an awesome podcast that I basically just learned about. I mean, so let's talk about The Walls Connection. So if anybody listened to our Fish Called Wanda episode with the most awesome Walls Trimble, we, were, we told her like what our plans were for the rest of the series. And she said, oh my God, you're doing another Halloween episode. You should talk to Brian. Which was, I, I was elated to hear because I had listened to your first Halloween episode and the whole time I'm listening, I'm like, get me in there, coach. Come on. <laughs> Come on. So it's, I, was, I was super excited when I got the email um, to invite uh-huh. me on. So thank you so much. This is, it's exciting. Yay. I love yeah. what you guys are doing. Brian, oh, so can you tell us like where does, within your sort of horror, like your various horror loves, where does Halloween fall for you? Halloween is, uh, it's, it's at the top. This is your <gasps> number Halloween. one. And it's funny, it's funny looking back on how it became the top because uh, it was never the first Halloween that got me into it. It was Halloween 4 because mm. it was always on TV when I was a kid. It always had the sequels. Everyone always had the rights for the sequels, but not, you know, it's harder to get to the original. So I remember growing up and like staying home from trick and treating those first few years of actually giving out candy mm-hmm. and um, Halloween 4 Return of Michael Myers would come on. And that was, um, I was like, man, I, I, I didn't, you know. So it kind of grew. I, then now I had a new appreciation for Michael. And then it wasn't until later I got to college that I finally actually saw Halloween 1. And I was like, damn, this is so much better. This is incredible. <laughs> and uh, and then that that really kind of laid kind of the groundwork for, you know, ever since wanting to, you know, fill in all these blind mm-hmm. spots in horror. And, and that journey of filling in blind spots has made me go like, this is like, this is really good. This is a really good genre. Wow. So, so this is like an in, this is like an origin story for you and your love of horror. Yeah, the Halloween totally, franchise. Totally. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I fucking love Halloween. So, yeah, it was exciting listening to you guys' Halloween episode because it was like, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I had all these same thoughts when I first – because I remember first seeing it in college too and uh, admittedly not finding it scary mm-hmm. at all. It kind of disappointed because I was like, this is the mecca of, you know, slasher and it's so slow. It's so deliberate. Like what's – and then 
a few years later, once I learned that like horror doesn't have to be scary, dread is a thing, mm. you know, tone is a thing. That the, and then I went back and I'm like, oh my god, this is a masterpiece. I was I just completely mm. had different um, expectations of what that should have been, and then yeah. So, so. return, which was your intro, mm-hmm. Halloween for the return of Michael Myers, is much more you would say like big scares. Return is. Uh, <laughs> in some ways you know going to the pantheon of michael myers Please. um it was it was like the the studio kind of giving up of trying to do different things and went <laughs> going no all right we're michael myers franchise you know um but not to say that it was bad because i feel like four is also of all of the halloween movies is the one that i feel most takes place at halloween you know mm-hmm. all the other ones are like spring in la you know or, <laughs> yeah. but uh but this one it starts off uh, I don't know if you've either have seen it, but the opening credits are just long shots of just like Midwest autumn, mm. and just that sets like a mood right away. Yeah, and um, and it was a one that I think did like a, a most admirable job of trying to branch, passing on the role of Michael to something else, and then they copped out and went back to Michael for five. But <laughs> okay, I love this four. This is good because so I'm curious about the the whole like. I don't know, franchise of how we get to this new Halloween we're talking about today. And I saw, I watched some of them. I've been trying to fill in a few blind spots. I have not seen all, what is it, 11 or whatever there are now. There are 11. But we had- so this Halloween 2018 is a direct sequel with nine other films in between. Yeah, yeah Correct. right. Correct. Right, right, right. That's right. So we had Halloween 1 which we talked about in 1978. We had Halloween 2, yep. which I watched, which is like theoretically wrapping up the Laurie Michael story for the first time. Right. It's like a part two. Yes. Because it just continues right it after. It follows yeah. that night. Is that mm-hmm. correct? It's like her right. at the hospital, hospital the next yeah. night. And it's basically my experience. I didn't love Halloween 2, I have to say. It was, it's basically just like a, a hospital slasher that then occasionally cuts yes. to Jamie Lee Curtis in a bed, like recovering. <laughs> And I'm right. realizing my connection to this franchise. I'm like, I want more Lori. Like, the more Lori there is in the movie, the more I'm enjoying the movie. Absolutely. And then yeah. Halloween 3, that's like no- nothing to do with Michael or Lori. Is that correct? Correct. 3 is it was trying to get back to the original idea of it being an anthology series, which you guys mentioned um, in the first series. Uh, but technically, the movie does still exist in that universe because at one point you see on the, one of the TVs, that Halloween is going to be showing on TV that night or whatever. So in some way, it's still even connected in that <laughs> way. They're watching like Laurie and Michael on TV. On TV in, in the movie. Incredible. Okay. Right. Exactly. I, yeah, I watched a... I, I have not seen any of the intervening Halloween films, just Halloween and Halloween. Um, <laughs> but not and, Halloween. But not Halloween. No, no, no. Uh, no, I, sk- I skipped that one. Um, I, I've been watching, as I mentioned the uh, dead meat recaps on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, Brian, are you a, are you familiar with that that YouTube channel? No, never channel? heard of it. Uh, yeah, he's uh, he's another horror buff out there named James A. Janice, and he does these recaps, which are, I mean, technically they're called the kill count, so they are sort of through the lens of like let's tally up the kills, mm-hmm. but they function as these sort of like twenty minute well edited video essay summaries with like you know footage from the 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 film. So I've seen. I didn't have the time to watch through all these movies. Caroline, you seem to have watched through a number of them. I kind of stuck with Jamie Lee. I went I okay. went through the ones that she was in, although not Resurrection, which we'll get to, yeah. but I sort of was like, I'll follow her through this franchise. I went in order up through H2O, and then I just ran out of time. But Season of the Witch looks kind of wild. It looks kind of nutty. 
Season of the Witch is rad. I think people, it's come around at, mm-hmm. when it first came out. I wasn't alive when that happened, but it was <laughs> critically, you know, everyone, actually critically it didn't do too, too bad. It was, um, I think Roger Ebert was like actually kind of happy about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, fans were like, no, this is a third Halloween movie. There's no Michael Myers. Therefore, I hate it. And then <laughs> after, you know, years down the line, I feel like people have come around to be like, no, actually, this is a really fun little <laughs> Halloween movie that um, it doesn't need Michael Myers. Okay, so people have- Hate. There's a bad response to three, which probably explains why four is called the return of Michael Myers. Exactly. And is that the studio was like, oh shit, we made him mad. We Halloween gotta go back. four, he's back, baby. Are four, mm-hmm. five, and six sort of like their own trilogy? This is getting into the territory I'm not familiar with at all. Four, it, yes, and kind. It, it's, it's all like you could. They're they're like many franchises all within like an eleven. Mm-hmm. Uh, four and five uh, operate under the same. Um, uh, logic of one and two mm-hmm. so it's like basically a sequel to two um and then six is it, kind of the same thing but it gets into like this thorn cult uh, ireland you know druid stuff mm. um um that uh doesn't really work i think six is pretty pretty rough which has paul rudd um, is paul rudd in six paul rudd is in okay. six playing uh an older tommy doyle which is the kid that yeah. she babysat who i think is coming back in played by anthony michael hall in halloween kills Whoa. in halloween kills he is I, yes along with Lindsay about too. these franchises oh, makes you sound like a crazy person i feel this way about marvel or like the fast and the furious franchise the way you like 100 have to talk so about these deckard things. shaw was the bad guy yeah. but now he's a good guy <laughs> i think i mean it's the same reason i love comic books mm-hmm. like there's reboots there's sequels there's franchise and it's it's fun to like have the background knowledge of like or it's it's like just being a fan of film you know you know behind mm-hmm. the scenes stuff you're like tracing all the connections so um, four you still have fond feelings for, for four is I it think just four is really fun okay four is i think four is a michael myers slasher is super fun great halloween atmosphere the mask is rough it will we can talk about but like it's so funny the mask is so simple and yet almost every <laughs> sequel gets it wrong except for i i feel 2018 i think 2018's mask is really good really cool um so uh but i think four is cool four um centers around jamie lloyd which was laurie strode's daughter mm-hmm. laurie strode is dead by this movie in the, the series but um her daughter is on the run from michael and by the end gets possessed by michael um and that would have been so kind of like full circle for the original halloween with young michael myers and yeah. the clown suit okay cool and so it was super exciting and then five kind of threw that out the window and did something different i've so seen the clip the sort of twist ending from the end of halloween four where it's mm-hmm. little little jamie lloyd jamie. with the scissors in the clown mask that is that is a chilling image for sure. It's chilling. And then Loomis is on the stairs screaming, no, no, no. Oh, yeah. So you know, Loomis like, stays around. Loomis stays until six and then very unceremoniously killed off at the end. Um, mm. like, yeah. I like Loomis. I think Loomis is fun. It's a fun hype man for Michael in all the movies. You know, he's man. like, he is. He's like, which makes Michael somewhat work. You got a guy running around going, you know, he's the, the darkest eyes, the devil's eyes coming up. And then Michael shows up and you're already scared. Of yeah, him. I could even Thanks tell from the switch from Halloween one to Halloween two that Loomis was on a real trajectory of broadness in terms of performance. And like you're saying, the for hype sure. man for the evil that is michael myers you're right totally totally he really does work as like in the same way that a hype man is like if you've got someone who's going to bring a stoic energy you need someone you need like if the flavor flavor to bring the like extremely high key energy 100 <laughs> percent. and so 
Yeah, Michael yep. doesn't announce himself. So you need Loomis being like, he's coming. Don't you fools understand? <laughs> and it's so and it's so melodramatic and it I, it works so much for me that it, it and it's like any other slasher formula, you know, the kids go into the cabin in the woods and they stop at the gas station and there's an old cranky mm-hmm. and don't go to the gas station. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's like I feel like it's needed for the formula in some way to we got to have some warning yeah. so then we know. Okay, mm-hmm. so after 6, we say goodbye to Loomis, but then we say hello again to Laurie Strode because this was the big this was Jamie Lee Curtis's first big high profile return to the franchise which I did watch Halloween H2O 1998 very much in the like scream Mm -hmm. mold not quite as meta in the way that scream is but very much that night like I felt a comfort to watching this 90s teen slasher even as a person who hasn't watched a lot of 90s teen slashers it somehow felt like a formula that was comforting to me and and very much the like high pro hyped high profile Jamie's back versus michael last confrontation movie i had a lot of fun with h2o i have to say h2o is super fun deborah and john carpenter were supposed to come back Mm -hmm. for that they they dropped out and i think that was i don't know if that's confirmed but i think that was a big reason why jamie was coming back for that one too to work with them and then yeah and then they dropped out um but i i've read that she you know you've talked about last episode she she's gone through addiction Mm -hmm. um and she loves talking about issues and and being you know laying the groundwork i think she saw an opportunity with h2o because the character is kind of going through that same thing um and the end of that movie incredible killer ending incredible it's interesting in the way the one we're talking about today halloween 2018 does in as much as it's a sequel to the first one it really does sort of feel like a remake of h2o as well in the sense that it's the same idea even though it sort of takes takes everything else out of the canon except for that first one it's doing Mm -hmm. a lot of the same things in term that h2o was doing in terms of like let's look at the trauma of what this experience was and how would you cope in the intervening years and it sort Mm -hmm. of takes a different a different lane than the 2018 one does and that in h2o Lori's like sort of put together she's like the headmaster of this fancy prep school and josh hartnett is her teenage son mm. and but she like you're saying she's like an uh an alcohol addict and is still traumatized by this just sort of in a less like i'm gonna build a bunker way than she is in 2018 mm-hmm. but it was interesting how how similar those two films felt to me that they both as their central project are like we're looking at a Lori much later on still processing this and now she has a kid of her own and he's Mm -hmm. coming back and she's gonna aggressively like put a stop to him although definitely definitely yeah the vibe is a little different in what i sort of thought of as the the new halloween which as i wrote uh h4o 40 years later (laughs) h4o totally in the fandom there is there is kind of a a divide for some groups that Mm -hmm. people prefer h2o Mm -hmm. over this new one and vice versa Mm -hmm um but uh yeah it's largely doing kind of the same thing like you said um and with a more final note at the yes. end too i i think h2o's ending is awesome and like as much as i love halloween if we never got another one after that it'd be like cool she yeah you know yes <laughs> um and then what and then the people series. then resurrect I, so i didn't watch resurrection but it does feature briefly features jamie is this correct yeah i think she is in the opening scene and just does she get it, killed gets killed off Ugh. she gets killed off. yeah what a horrible the, the twist up to a great Awful. ending. The twist in that, because Michael gets away at the end of Halloween H two O from like the 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 hospital or whatever the yeah. the ambulance, and so the 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 twist is that it was actually a hospital like EMT that was in the mask. I see, like a him. switched places situation. She exactly. cut off the wrong guy's head. We don't wrong like that. guy's head, right? And so Michael comes back, kills Laurie in the opening oh. moments of a movie. 
which is like Brutal. just like completely robbed all of H2O's like weight and you know um and then it goes off for you know Buster Rhymes having a dangertainment you know spooky haunted house it's 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 a weird movie but <laughs> <laughs> there's but it's fun i feel like if you took out the opening of killing off lori and it was his own thing sure. of just like a re- reality tv show in the michael myers house mm-hmm. there's like there's a fun idea there yes yeah um, and then that's but, the next chunk of movies i guess there's only two of them but that is that idea of like let's just do a full reboot rob zombie comes in and does a yeah. halloween and halloween 2 so this is our <laughs> this is our second movie called halloween comes out in halloween. 2007 and that's just like right. a complete remake reboot reimagining yeah, rob zombie makes it very you know grisly gnarly is uh uh i've heard someone you know his his aesthetic is hillbilly rapist but oh, <laughs> sure. people have like you know which isn't wrong you know looking at his disc yes. you know filmography mm-hmm. um but you know the, he he makes michael you know and a, 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 gives him a backstory which was no no number yes. one um, mm. for many fans um including john carpenter and then uh and then this halloween 2 was was Ad, it, it, it was admirable admirable how bonkers it was like it was completely new it didn't follow any formula it was the ghost of his mother on a white horse was like haunting him it was a strange movie wow i had to you know tip my hat to rob that he did something completely different mm-hmm. and at least that was cool but do you like like house of a thousand corpses or devil's rejects or i no, <laughs> I think that. Yeah, nice short um, answer. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think there's, there's some really fun parts. I'm not a huge Rob Zombie fan. Mm-hmm. I think his, my favorite movie of his is Lords of Salem because it's the most un-Rob Zombie movie. It's slow. It's like kind of haunting. It's about witches in Salem, and like it's, um, I think that's his, my favorite one of his. I'm not a fan of his like high octane, like in your face. I desperately want to be Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. You know, like, mm-hmm. but that's you know, th- there's preferences in any fandom yeah. and uh rob just isn't mine so sure. <laughs> so after so we have the rob zombies and then that finally brings us up to 20 years after h2o and 40 years after original halloween we get back to halloween 2018 jamie's back and she's kicking off a new trilogy of movies she's kicking off a new trilogy she is hunkered down uh, since then, uh, her trauma has uh, – she, she's become a bit of a survivalist. Yes, um, and explicitly just a sequel to the first one. one. Whereas H2O mm-hmm. was a sequel to one and two. The big thing that – this is my understanding. The big thing that two introduces is the idea that Michael is her brother. brother which then this right. movie, the 2018 Scraps. version, is like, haha, that's silly. Let's not do that, which fair enough. Which I, I plot. I think I, I, Michael, I think, works so much better not having any backstory. You know, just that, like, the second you give him any reason for doing something, it's like, oh, well, that's why he was doing yes. it. Yes. Like, I'm not, you know? He works with an air of mystery. Okay, so that's a, that's the time. I just needed to get the timeline settled a there little bit is. into my mind. And then <laughs> Halloween Kills is coming out so soon. So soon. We, uh, it got pushed. It was the a pandemic, one of the many pandemic woes. It got pushed a whole year. And that, that was But that you'll was be, is your plan to go see it? in the theater oh, of course you'll be their opening night I couldn't, I couldn't be more hyped oh yeah oh yeah very excited especially because they're bringing back up more characters we're getting Dom- tommy doyle mm-hmm. we're bringing back Lindsay. we're even getting um lonnie <laughs> like the bully lonnie's from coming kid back from- lonnie's coming back. oh because lonnie is the father of cameron of cameron right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and the friend of ray r.i.p and ray. what's we and you know we'll get more into the movie but it, even though this movie ignores all of the sequels like kinetic 
canonically is that canonically yeah uh, canonically enough. there we go <laughs> um since halloween one it has like in a like a, a celebration still embedded mm-hmm. in it of all of them there is there's so many call outs to different things um you know uh, the, the halloween three masks are on trick-or-treaters i saw those point, masks you know? i did catch that and i i feel like uh i'm excited for halloween kills so much in that it's calling for more um, like in Halloween 4, there was a big mob justice plot mm-hmm. line where the town was fed up, the cops not being able to stop them. Yeah. I feel like Halloween Kills is definitely going to be that again because it's just more continuation of the, this one that we just mm-hmm. watched. Um, and then theoretically, yeah. in 2022, we're getting Halloween Ends, which would wrap up this trilogy. I'm assuming yes. we'll not really wrap up the end of Michael Myers because someone will definitely reboot or remake someone this will at some point. Them. But yeah, theoretically, yeah. this this 2018 movie is kicking off our new Jamie trilogy. Correct. Yes. And Emily asked me, she said, isn't this the second in a trilogy? And I said, no, no, no. Well, I said it's the first in a trilogy. (laughs) Well, I guess includes the first. I guess it's the second in a tetralogy. Yeah, (laughs) correct. Yeah. In 1978, 2018, 2021, 2022, Halloween continuity tetralogy. Right. So, yeah. So. Which is, yeah. I mean, you, we're 11 movies in and you're like, what's, is anything fresh anymore? Which mm-hmm. I, I, which makes me excited about this mm-hmm. one was, it, it was, it, it took a lot of things that the first one did and that surprisingly nine other sequels didn't do anything with was like this really scared unknown um, origins. Um, and I'm excited about Kills because it's, it, we'll see if it ever turns out to be that mm-hmm. way. But David Gordon Green has said that this, that all three movies are going to have a very different tone. This first one is very much more more halloween slow Mm -hmm. dread uh, michael's coming back kills is going to be like all out slasher and then ends is supposed to be a small movie with michael and laurie that sounds cool i'm very um, curious about that so we'll see how it plans out but um that's that's what i've read yeah the, the trailer for kills which i only watched right before this certainly looks like the kill count is going to be high not so and gory not so I mean, I saw like a concrete saw getting used in there. There's people getting stabbed with lighting tubes. I think that trailer's rad. <laughs> I think that trailer. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. It was a very. I watched. Ned, Ned and I both watched it right before we started recording, so it's fresh in both of our minds. I was just gonna say. So this podcast, three days before this podcast drops, um, Halloween Kills will have just screened at the Venice Film Festival. So theoretically, our listeners mm-hmm. could be getting some early buzz as to what that film is like. Um, and Jamie Lee Curtis is also getting the Golden Lion for Lifetime Achievement Award at the That's festival. Nice. So I feel like this is a lovely like time to be ending our Jamie series, like a note of celebration for her future, her resurgence, like the yeah. era of Jamie is once again upon us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I feel like this movie, Halloween 2018, we we now know that it is going to be a, a trilogy or a tetralogy or what have you, but... Right. It also does kind of work as like a closing note. Like they could have called it, could have it been done. Yeah. And this would have been a solid ending beat for the Halloween franchise, I think. I agree. 100% agree. I, I David Gordon Green and uh, co-writer um, Danny McBride have also said that they, the original plan was to shoot two back to back. And they scrapped that and they're like, well, what if everyone hates us? <laughs> you know, this first movie, let's just do one. And then they have ended up doing reshoots after test screening. So mm, um, I'm- interesting. And then, OK, so this movie, I feel like the general vibe is like well received. Maybe some people were on the mixed end, but also right. it makes a shit ton of money. I think this is now the highest grossing 
unadjusted, but the highest grossing slasher film. So like, there's no way they weren't going to make a sequel to this if your movie breaks all box office records. Yeah, right. Definitely. It's also the uh, highest grossing film uh, with a a woman over 55. Right. Yes, Uh, Jamie. Fuck yeah. Wow. Um, I keep thinking about that quote we had in the Freaky Friday episode where she was like, wow, I can't believe it. At my ancient age of 45, I'm still allowed to work in movies. And now here she is. In her 60s, killing it metaphorically killing and it. literally. Yeah. Love it. We love to see it. Um, So I threw the kind of elephant in the room, the Michael Myers in the room. Oh, my God. He's over there behind the mannequins. Is <laughs> what do we all think of this movie? Let's start with Brian. I, mean, I, I want to hear it. Yeah, I want to hear Brian's take. I like it. I like it. I, there's, it's not without some hiccups, you know, that it's not. But I think it gets a tone so well that the first one won. I think um, in no small part. Halloween is the music mm-hmm. that like without the music of the first movie, that movie just wouldn't work. You know, that it, it's it's like the soul of the movie that John Carpenter's like piano going through. And I feel like him coming back to do the music again for this one really revived something. This, the sequels have been really been missing. So I as a fan, I loved this one. I think it was really fun. I thought the ending was the third act kills mm-hmm. like just like as far as. It kind of stumbles in its second act. The twist I have, you know, thoughts about with Dr. Sartain. Um, Sartain but um, where would you rank yeah, overall, this? Do you have a ranking or like a top three or four or something? Oh, yeah. I think this I think this is my second favorite. Okay. After it's the always first Halloween. One. And this is this is right after the first What if your favorite one? was Halloween this... 4 and then this one? And then you're like, oh, yeah, the original one's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Halloween 4 is not, not that far um, past this one. But um, I, I do. I think 2018 – succeeds in so many different ways it succeeds on a nostalgia front without like really giving into Mm -hmm. it i think it's just kind of which maybe people would disagree with that but (laughs) i think that it's uh the the parallels of going through the house where laurie's now hunting michael at the end is so it's so cool to see those call outs in 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 a reversed way yeah i don't know i'm interested to see what you two think about because i could go on like (laughs) duh i like it i love halloween so uh, i will say i want to know what you guys think i was a little bit mixed i would say there's a lot of things about this i really enjoyed i will also acknowledge that i did sort of i crammed a lot of halloweens into a very short amount of time in terms of first (laughs) viewings (laughs) so i was realizing sort of like you know for me i like i watched the original halloween watched halloween Mm 2 then saw jamie right again in h2o then saw jamie again right in you know halloween 2018 so i think part of the joy of this series is like it's been 20 years since we've seen her she's back this is incredible you know how amazing is this whereas to me i was like oh yeah i watched her in a movie last night and now i'm watching her in a movie this night so i think some of the the sort of timeline joy of it was lost for me Mm -hmm. so i i almost feel like i maybe would put if my ranking i think i would put h2o above this i'm that maybe that more controversial side of the fandom that (laughs) likes (laughs) that likes that one more but i i don't think i have a negative take on on 2018 and i'm certainly interested to see where the sort of next ch- chunk of this trilogy goes. Yeah, totally. I only saw the original and the new one, as I said, but I loved this. I thought it was I thought it was sweet. I mean, I will say one, you know, one of my earliest notes on it, completely agree, Brian. The music goes so fucking hard. It's I, so fucking good. The music is <laughs> the music is incredible and every time it pump every time it kicks in, I'm so amped. Every time they hit you with one of those extremely 1978 like mm-hmm. like piercing synth sounds the most satisfying one god i like i just like did a gasp giggle when michael as you said the like the twists of the beats when he pushes her off the balcony mm-hmm. and she's lying on the ground unconscious and he turns around when allison comes in the room 
Mm-hmm. And then he looks back and she's gone. And it's like, and he is just like looking down I cheered. passive face. Alone in yeah, my totally apartment. Cheers, I right? cheered. <laughs> there are, they earn themselves some cheers in the end of this movie. And I find a lot of it quite satisfying. And I agree it is walking an interesting sort of delicate line that actually reminds me of, wait for it. Mary Poppins Returns. <gasps> Whoa. Whoa. Okay. And which I think at the time I tied into the new Star Wars sure. uh, trilogy, mm-hmm. all of which are walking this line where the reason for the project existing is arguably has a lot to do with nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Totally. You know, yep. the green lighting of the project has to do with, for whatever reason, the kind of like mass of American moviegoers now. I definitely feel like you can sort of make this generalization about a lot of millennials, but I think a lot of people, we are, right now, we are really excited about the idea of projects revisiting the properties from, you know, the 20th century. And totally. So I agree that the way this one hits the same beats and subverts other beats to layer in new things is all really really satisfying and i would actually say with the second act i mean i i don't know what we sort of define as the second act but talking about the reveal of dr sartain as being someone who is like gone off the deep end that he basically i mean in, in the very beginning in the in the beginning when you hear his voice over this sort of narration i was like oh they got a sam loomis impersonator maybe he's going to be like like a you know a, a de-aged princess leia kind of a situation or i didn't know i didn't know that that wouldn't make sense continuity wise but then when he came out i was like oh he's just a guy who does a sam loomis like brings a sam loomis vibe so then yep. twisting it to be like actually but he's evil sam loomis he's like gotten so obsessed with michael myers that now he wants to wear the mask and like murder the cop and yeah i like that act. i i always enjoy a little like inmates are running the asylum angle sure. and it also has kind of a jurassic park vibe he seeks to control and understand the unknowable and mm-hmm. then is sort of like struck down for his hubris and being like you can't understand it and you can't control it and uh and now you're just gonna get your head squished <laughs> which is a crazy <laughs> moment i yeah um so i would say oh and then and then the third act i think rules when the when the they pull that trap shut on him and then light the flare and then the music kicks in for a final time i'm like oh this is amazing and and the wonderful judy greer's like i can't do it i can't Her fake do it. out gotcha. oh yeah oh that was great i love that, that. I, I was literally writing a note ass. like why is this character so annoying in that you know the movie completely got me in the way that she got michael mm-hmm. i was very satisfied by that i agree it really works because i was completely ready to take it at face value mm-hmm. and uh yeah it's a great mm-hmm. moment and the three of them just the image of the three of them like working together and stabbing at him and mm-hmm. like working as this unit is really exciting and i think i think i actually think we sort of talked about this a little on our quiet place episode and why i didn't want to see the Millicent Simmons character become like a final girl because I just kind of wanted her to live in a nicer, sweeter world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this does a thing that I I think I also cited Sidney Prescott in Scream. It is this hunted becomes the hunter thing where the character has been hardened to the point of like inhabiting the killer role and turning the killer's abuses like back on them. Mm-hmm. That is 
very darkly satisfying in the right movie. I felt in The Quiet Place that it was sort of being thrust in and I didn't like it doing that. But this is probably like, I mean, this movie takes as its, as its whole project, it feels like, what happens to a final girl 40 years on mm-hmm. if she like never gets out of that mindset. Should we do, can I do a little quick like plot recap maybe for people that yeah. have forgotten since then? Please so yeah, do. like you say, it's 40 years since the original killings. We're only following the 78 movie. Got Laurie Strode. I, see, you say Mary Poppins Returns. I was fully into the like Terminator franchise. Like she's sort of become oh, sure. the Sarah Connor survivalist. Sure. Like we can't live normal lives. We have to spend our whole time preparing for this, uh, you know, inevitable return of Michael Myers, who now in this in this canon was sort of immediately captured after those seventy eight attacks, put in a psychiatric hospital, watched by the quote unquote new Loomis, but of course is being transferred on Halloween night, which I think that the state of Illinois should stop doing this. They should stop transferring him <laughs> on Halloween night. Um, but that's the setup there. And then in in the Lori timeline, she's had a daughter played by Judy Greer, whose name is Karen, who was taken away when she was 12 because Lori was deemed an unfit mother. And Karen is in the mode of trying to just live a normal, happy life. She's got a teenage daughter named Allison. And it's always sort of like crazy old grandma is is warning us about things that, of course, will never come to pass. But inevitably, Michael makes his return to Haddonfield. And we've sort of got, like you're saying, the sort of the three generations of of women that are eventually going to team up to sort of trap him and take him down. Mm-hmm. Which you mentioned, Ned, too, the, like the, 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 um, the hunter becomes the prey and like the, the kind of angle of mm-hmm. the reversal, I, which I, I appreciate this movie also, too. Um, it doesn't glamorize any of it. You know, it's it's Laurie's this gun toting, you know, badass, you know, but it's also like you see uh, it completely ruined her family, you know, and that and what she's become. She's become in some ways the, the monster to her family, too, and which I love. I think that uh, the one of the first introductions we get of Allison, she's in the classroom and getting the same fate talk. And she looks out the window and sees Laurie. I loved that. Her, loved you know? that. It we'll so it's, and it's like that same thought of like, this is this is haunting me, you know, like it's it's. It's a cycle of violence that at the end of this movie insinuates keeps going, too. Um, That really struck me about actually Jamie Lee Curtis's performance. I think that this is by far the least glam we've ever seen her. You know, even in True Lies and Freaky Friday, they're both movies that sort of start with her less glam, but she gets, you know, either more glam or more fun or something by the end. Mm -hmm. This Mm -hmm. is like her most stripped back naturalistic performance which is fascinating that it's coming in this you know heightened horror movie but i was actually so impressed by the way she she just has this world weary acceptance to her that Mm -hmm. is like fascinating to watch and everyone's sort of like i get why everyone's accusing her of being paranoid and she gets like one scene in a restaurant where she is really flustered because she's just seen michael being transferred but for the most part like she also comes across sort of rational <laughs> maybe just cuz from our mm-hmm. audience perspective we're like yeah of course she's right like you should be this prepared but i just found this to be like a really great stripped back deglammed performance from Jamie i was super impressed by this yeah i agree that it's really it is extremely quiet and restrained and it's kind of cool because that is that is kind of Lori's mode i mean that we see from the first movie she is not Lori's not glam at all, and she's not brash or brazen at all. I mean, we've talked a lot about how when you go from Lori to watching a movie like A Fish Called Wanda, she like suddenly explodes with this outlandish domineering energy. But that's not really Lori's style at all. And so I think it's a really cool 
take on that character. You know, she's, you know, Lori also has like, from the first Halloween movie, like not much sense of humor, even though I yeah. think we've talked a lot on the last three episodes about how <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis clearly does have a really great sense of humor. That's not really a part of this character, so it's also not really a part of this performance. Yeah, it is <laughs> funny that her two sort of, I guess, things she's known for are horror and comedy, but there's never any intersection, right? She's not doing like horror comedies. It really is like two separate funnels of her career that I think she's sort of equally good at. And that's like a very, I don't know, it's like her career is harder to sum up than I think maybe some of the other people we've covered on this podcast. Is that yeah, accurate, Brian? I, Do you know? Yeah, I, I agree. Seen? Yeah, that's true. Uh, Maybe she's done like 12 horror <laughs> comedies and I just don't well, watch them. I, I think you're hitting on a really, because I've been thinking about this moment in this movie too, that like it subverts what we would expect from Laurie Strode in a way that like that she's not giving us, you know, mm-hmm. that like that, that Halloween established her as this kind of scream queen that mm-hmm. other sequels have kind of, and that I, I, I think about that, that moment when Michael's being transferred and she's in her car and she does a scream, but it's the sound is cut. So we, we're not even given the scream, mm-hmm. you know, that like, it's really subverting all these, like, she's not going to give you what, you, you know, <laughs> that, that she doesn't care even for the audience, what you want from a Laurie Strode, which I think is pretty awesome. E- even when she's badass and the, you're seeing all these, you know, family members that are saying like, this it really wasn't cool at all even though it looks like it um so yeah that's what i i that's that's what yeah. as far as her being another roles that i wouldn't i don't know fish called wanda is great <laughs> <laughs> well i think she's just a you know, crazy like goofy actress i think then she brings so much enthusiasm and i remember seeing behind the scenes footage of this movie and her like Almost being the director herself, like walking people around and being like, no, this is how it was. This is, we were, you know, if we're doing a character study and this is what Haddonfield is like and this is what Laura, you know, it was, it was fun to see her being such a commanding role yeah. versus. It is interesting. You know, I feel like we, in terms of like Jamie's career as a whole, like we had, you know, introduction as Scream Queen in the 70s these comedies in the 80s then she has that period in the 90s where it feels like maybe she her career doesn't have like a one defining thing and she does try to do like a Mm -hmm. halloween she does h2o as a sort of like okay i'll go back to my roots and maybe that gets a little bit more of a mixed reception then she does the sort of comedy mom thing in freaky friday so well and i think after that sort of tries to recapture that with like christmas with the cranks and beverly hills chihuahua and I don't know. I feel like her career after Freaky Friday was another like question mark of like, where is this going to go? And she was on that Scream Queen show and she had like a, you know, she would pop up on New Girl every once in a while. And apparently she did six episodes of NCIS, which I feel like is the craziest thing she I've ever heard. Like, <laughs> I've seen those episodes. <laughs> like, um, Yeah. Anyway, so I just feel like that her career, like from Freaky Friday onward was a little bit more of a question mark. And then I think the return to Halloween in 2018 even if I maybe like H2O a little bit more, I think this relaunches her career maybe more successfully than H2O did in terms of I feel like she's in such a a peak of people loving her again because of this movie. And then she oh, does yeah. Knives Out the next year, which I feel like people loved her in that so much. And it just feels mm-hmm. like she's in this real mm-hmm. renaissance period and, and returning to this horror you know, world ended up working so well for sort of relaunching her career in her 60s. Mm-hmm. Which is like awesome. Like you said, like how many times are there massive movies starring women over 50 that are opening to, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars? Like it's incredible. Yeah. It is interesting that a lot of times, a lot of times when you get these like returns to the role, returns to a franchise later on, there's always going to be some soundbite from someone saying, well, we never would have come back until we had a good script. And sometimes that rings a little false. I mean, like, 
right. Harrison Ford and Steven Spielberg and co said that about Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. They were like, we were never going <laughs> to... We were never going to revisit Indy. we couldn't Indy. say no to this. I, you know? Yeah, when Shia yeah, LaBeouf exactly. was swinging on vines with some oh monkeys, which we could never return. Monkeys. Yeah, which is oh obviously no. that, that movie I think is a total piece of ass. Uh, <laughs> so a lot of times when you hear that, you know, I also, I always think of Krusty the Clown saying, ah, they drove a dump truck full of money up to my house. I'm not made of stone. So <laughs> I think that happens a lot, but it is nice. I'm sure that, you know, to give... Jamie some credit it feels like probably she would not have made time for this project unless she was sold on the idea and I think fortunately this is one of those times where we can say oh you know like the proof is in the pudding it it did turn out to be I think quite a cool movie and probably quite a cool project for her particularly if as you say Brian she like she had sort of artistic agency in the film I mean, totally. as you said, being sort of like the reigning expert on the world of Halloween, which it must have, in a sense, it must have taken some real guts to like direct this. I mean, I, get, I don't know much about David Gordon Green. I know Danny McBride, although obviously I think of him primarily as an actor. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it must have been slightly intimidating to come to set as a longtime fan of the Halloween film with jamie lee curtis there and be like okay here's what laurie's gonna do in this next scene yeah and not just her too because this is the first john carpenter came back mm-hmm. to um do the music not just do the music but he was a you know artistic consultant with the director he was a producer um along with jamie so um that i mean i can only imagine going to john carpenter and pitching you know this is what we're gonna do yeah. after this movie you've you've <laughs> he's even admitted he's never he hasn't seen many of the sequels himself mm-hmm. like so it's like how do you pitch a movie like this is the sequel you should do and you should come and join it with us john carpenter says it in some interview that jason blum is just like you should just get off your ass and help us and john carpenter was like oh okay yeah like <laughs> damn <laughs> no one's ever talked to me like that but uh, yeah let's do that yeah, yeah. Um, david gordon green i think he has one of the weirdest hollywood careers he sort of bursts onto the scene as this like super well-respected like indie auteur character study drama guy then makes a hard left turn into the james franco comedy space of pineapple express and your highness and oh, then sort of returns more to like drama territory with like that stronger movie that jake gyllenhaal was in and joe that nicholas cage was in and then now is he you know doing these halloween movies so a real a real eclectic career (laughs) very much so yeah yeah, yeah. and now he's after this he's doing uh blumhouse and universal paid like 100 million dollars for the exorcist and he's making a new exorcist oh really so he's doing that after this so like now he's the new horror guy you know within universal blumhouse it feels like he's he's becoming like a jj abrams who it's like bring him in to spice up your old franchise sure it's like (laughs) right oh yeah uh, who should we get for the new star wars how about the guy who did the new star trek why not yeah why not right like oh we want to bring back the exorcist let's get new halloween guy (laughs) and if it uh, kind of turns out that he actually didn't have that the ability to handle all these different projects then uh well, we'll see with kills and ends. Yeah, you know, I'm yeah. curious to see what the response to those will be. So I, if I could bring up, I think my problems, the things I like about this movie. Let me start that sentence yeah. 40 times before I actually start speaking. Please. The thing I like about this movie is everything to do with Lori, all of the ideas of the sort of family stress and trauma and how that affects them. I even like the sort of storyline of how Michael escapes and the sort of new Loomis being involved in that. I think my problems were that the movie did not focus on those elements enough. I think that this is a movie with too many characters and Mm -hmm. not enough understanding of what its strongest elements are. 
And so I think my frustrations were always when we were when we were leaving Lori behind. Like I really wish this movie had like twice as much Jamie Lee Curtis in it. I found the the opening subplot with these that we referenced in our opening with the the British podcasters that are making like a serial style true crime podcast about Lori and mm-hmm. Michael. I actually thought that was a really fun setup, but then is bizarrely dropped. Like it sort of was like it almost feels like that was an earlier draft of the movie and then they were like, "Well, we don't want to keep that through, so we'll just have them get killed off and then you have a lot of time spent on the granddaughter Allison and all of her various friends who get killed off Mm -hmm. and I found all of those I found all of those scenes like almost borderline unwatchable I was like I just don't care about (laughs) these teens I don't think their dialogue is very well written I would just would wish we had sort of all the screen time that was devoted to that I wish was devoted to Lori and Karen Judy Gruda's character and then the granddaughter like all the three generations but then I'm like maybe this is you know, I'm not the the biggest horror fan. So maybe this is just sort of how it works. Like you need those characters that are going to get killed off. And maybe that's the part of horror that I like the least. I'm like, well, but they're just going to get killed off. I don't care about them. And maybe I'm missing that joy that comes from like a great kill. Sure, totally. I mean, that's such a trope within just any like all all the Friday the 13th movies, the first half hour is just a teen hangout movie. Yeah, like that's there's nothing scary. And then and then Jason finds a way to come back. And then like, that's they all get picked off. But I, I, I think this is I agree with uh, this is one of my cons of this mm-hmm. movie is that kind of the writing and introducing these characters because I feel like the humor is so uneven and kind of all yeah. over the place that you can kind of feel when Danny McBride yes. has a line <laughs> in, you know, like, um, let's do like, a little they were feeding me guacamole in all these really sexy ways. <laughs> right. And like, I got to clean this peanut butter off my penis, yeah. you know, like yeah. things or like that, that where you just kind of pulls you out and like the banh mi sandwich and that I was like, what is 100%. happening here? Which which it, it wasn't f- all that because I feel like the the babysitter and the um uh what's her name uh, uh vicky yes, yes. The, the boy she's babysitting julian. i feel like that whole exchange was hilarious i, I thought that. julian was hilarious i thought like that when <laughs> dave you know his disdain for dave and like no send, <laughs> send dave, dave first <laughs> you know i thought that was so it was it was it was kind of frustrating and that like no you guys can make it really funny and then you also so it felt like there was two different voices Mm -hmm. competing is what i felt i really like some humor in my horror films i think there is something about those two elements that works so well something about the like the like tension and release i think Mm -hmm. a horror movie with no humor is like really missing an opportunity because I think the ability to like go from one to the other is really cool. I would agree that I think Vicky and Julian, their little, you're my least favorite. You're my 10th favorite kid I babysit. No, you're my, you're my actual favorite. I thought that was nice because it gave me a sense of her personality, which did invest me in him. It was a subversion of and reference to the kind of babysitter kids dynamic from the first one. So it felt like mm-hmm. pulling in something specifically that was on the palette and kind of retreading. I mean, the sort of weirdly informal relationship with babysitters and their charges in Halloween 1 where, you know, Annie is like, I, let me take you over. Let me take Lindsay over. I'm dropping you off at the Doyles. And then I'm like, going to go see my boyfriend. And so I think that was really fun. I also, I did write with the cops talking about the Bond me, like, why, but also I enjoy horror. I enjoy, or I I enjoy humor in horror, (laughs) so I like what it does to the rhythm. But I do agree, I do agree with your sort of fundamental point, Caroline, that for me, I wrote the note, I wanted more Karen. Like, this character seems, like, really important for the way that she acts as, like, a lens to look at Lori's life. I mean, it's like, what's the, what has to be, like, she's kind of standing in for, like, the great tragedy of Lori's life is that she 
hurt the people in her life. And Karen's the clear example of that. Like, we don't really know about her two husbands. But it is an interesting little look at generational trauma and, and, and the way in which the trauma of being stalked by a serial killer is one thing, but then the trauma of like not having trust or safety with mm-hmm. your parents is something else. Also, the way in which, you know, family relationships can have all this trauma baked in in a way that even when things are theoretically hunky-dory, you can never see around it. And I think this does take an interesting look at the way that sometimes grandparents and grandchildren can kind of have this close relationship because the grandparent did not directly raise the grandkid. So the grandkid was not hurt in the same way. It's It just explores a very interesting dynamic where Allison is able to be close to Lori because she like didn't live through the things that Karen lived through. And I felt prior to the third act, I was like, where has Karen been through this movie? Like, I want more of that. I also think Judy Greer is just such a phenomenal and often underused actor. She's awesome. And I think I agree that that she, where a lot of her backstories were getting peripherally in like really compelling like little moments, mm-hmm. like seeing, you know, her just her in a Christmas sweater. It just like speaks you know, on I Halloween night. I love the Christmas sweater. Right. Or like her at, at the end when the house is burning down and we see that her toy house, that mm-hmm. she, their doll house that she grew up with was the Myers house, like yeah. things like that. I'm like, damn, that's <laughs> messed up. You know, like I would have loved to get more of Karen without just like getting these hints off screen. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. calling back to Karen. Yeah. Even the relationship between the grandmother and granddaughter that you're talking about, Ned, I think the movie raises that. I don't think it really explores it. I think we get, you know, like one or two scenes, but most of Allison's scenes are with her friends. And even the Mm -hmm. way that Michael enters her life, Michael Myers enters her life, it's kind of coincidental. That was another thing I bumped on in this movie is a lot of the... The kills and everything intersecting was sort of just coincidental. Like, I don't think the fact that Michael Myers goes to kill Vicky, who's Allison's friend, is because he's stalking Allison, who he knows to be Lori's granddaughter. It was just sort of like, he, oh, this is a babysitter I'm going to kill. And and a lot of that felt coincidental to me. And I have to say, so I I do, I, I don't want to offend <laughs> your love of Halloween, Brian. I don't know if, if Michael Myers is my ideal like threat horror movie threat Mm -hmm. because i think that the way in which he is a man makes the way he's a monster less interesting and then the way he's a monster makes the way he's a man less interesting oh because i think that he you know the idea of a regular person having the ability to kill you is very scary and i think of a sequence like in the movie zodiac where you're sort of seeing these Mm -hmm. horrific real life serial killings take place that's so scary and i think there's something so scary about a monster that's just like all powerful that can come and get you but michael myers Mm -hmm. is sort of both and that somehow makes each element less scary because it's like okay if you can never kill him well what are the stakes like he's always going to come back and then but then he's not so monstrous that he's like feels unstoppable in a in a fantastical way right yeah i i i hear you (laughs) and um, I think what I love about him is that he that they just the opposite. Yeah. I think that like he lives in this liminal space between the two that like um he's not quite a man and he's not quite a monster that like makes me really uneasy mm-hmm. that I can't quite classify what he is. Um, I think and I think it's funny you mentioned coincidentally that he runs into Allison in this movie because I think that's the most like yes that's that was from the first movie the only reason why he's following Lori is because she came and dropped off the keys mm-hmm. at the Myers house you know that like oh this is someone and 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 I think there's there's these layers that you can slowly peel back with Myers that makes it even more unnerving that Myers I feel like has this really dark 
sense of humor to him mm. too that like he loves like he has held this curiosity the tilt head tilt the you know he meets the cops in this movie and he makes little head jack-o-lanterns out of him mm-hmm. you know like he's You're got right. this he like does, he likes doing like little bits he's like i'm gonna like drop bits. some bloody teeth with you and like <laughs> he does dioramas he is like which a failed him... comedian a failed yeah, stand-up and... comedian which is just so unnerving that like that this is how you know he doesn't really exist without the mask mm-hmm. you know that like i always loved that shot in the first halloween uh, at the beginning when the parents come home and take off michael's mask and he's just a kid like yeah. but there's nothing there uh-huh. he's just like a void of anything um I, yeah i think that the, the all these pieces together of like this like hollow man that puts on this mask and kind of disappears even though the eyes are mm-hmm. cut out rarely do you get to see in really unnerves me um, I think that's yeah. I also then struggle with because I do think you're right that the randomness of the crimes can be very scary and effective because there's sort of no rhyme or reason or motivation. But then I also mm-hmm. think the way that these sequels naturally are going to want to make him stalking Laurie the central premise, but that almost gives him motivation again because it's sort of like the way he's come back and like he need it almost feels to me like. You know, in the first one, it wasn't like I need to kill Lori because of some reason. It was sort of like she just happened to be there. So the idea that 40 years later, he's still obsessed with killing her feels almost like too much motivation for me. And I get why Mm -hmm. the uh, the other sequels added the sister thing to sort of try to rationalize that. And I get why this one decided not to do that as well, because that also feels very convenient and silly in its own way. But I I think Mm -hmm. whether or not the sister relationship is there, his obsession with Lori is almost a little bit too much for me as well. Even though I, I love Lori and I want her to be mm-hmm. in this movie, I've like locked myself into a paradox. Well, it is. I noted this same sort of strange contradiction. I agree that I like doing away with the sister thing because I think what is so scary about the first movie is like somebody might just pick you, mm-hmm. and I think that mm-hmm. is much scarier than your your brother, your your psychotic monster brother might come and kill you because of his sister shit. I think it is mm-hmm. scarier to be like, you could just be in the suburbs and be picked by someone who decides that they want to kill you. Yeah. And I still buy that she is obsessed with him. Mm-hmm. And I buy that he seeing her and being like, this is the only person who got away from me, that that would be a thing somewhere in his sort of dark consciousness. It gets weird when the other characters, like particularly Dr. Sartain, or whatever mm-hmm. his name is, are like, we must put Laurie Strode and Michael together. <laughs> yeah. Because it's like they bring in this movie awareness. It's like nobody else within the events of the world, particularly if you reset to just one movie, should really have an awareness or an idea of a relationship, a long-running relationship. It's a way in which the movie celebrating all the movies Mm -hmm. does kind of create a little weirdness by injecting this idea that certain people in the world are going to see the relationship between Laurie and Michael as a mythic one. Because in the movie, it's just like they had this one 12-minute encounter 40 years ago. It's not in the world of the movie. It's not like they dueled time and time and time again. But it's still like kind of grafts that thing onto it. So I I see the weirdness there. Although I would say I personally, I am of the opinion that I find it compelling that Michael is weirdly ambiguous. He lives in a place where you can't, you can't indisputably say he's immortal, which is why a, a you know, a, a mm-hmm. decapitation thing, if they do that in a movie is kind of interesting because it's like that is flat out 
No one survives being decapitated. Almost no one survives being hit by cars, but some people do. Almost no one survives being shot a bunch of times, but some people do, right? Mm -hmm. So the fact that they make him unstoppable without being supernatural, you know, he appears to teleport off camera, but you never see it. Mm -hmm. I like those things. I find them interesting. Although I do see what you mean, Caroline, like it's not quite the same as the horror of... And I guess you didn't even say like that's weaker. You said it appeals less to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that we, there are many genres of different fears, right? Too, which I, I do feel everything you're saying about the, the kind of randomness, but with the apparent why is he still obsessed mm-hmm. in this in this kind of situation? Mm-hmm. That's something I didn't pick up the first few times I saw this, like in theaters and after. But the most recent rewatch, I noticed that like he's not he's he's they, there's a, there's this preservation of his randomness that has showed that like he's not on any track Mm. and it's actually the characters in the movie that are putting him there that like he only gets to Lori's house because cops are on the way to Lori's house and he's in the car you know that like if they if they were never coming he would have still been off you know by that baseball field where they guess you are right actually and it is really the doctor I just am only going to call him New Loomis it is New Loomis that is (laughs) the one that's like I'm going to drive you to Lori's house because I'm curious about that you're so right that it is not Michael's doing yeah and it's and even laurie's like i'm desperately want him because i need some closure i want him to come here you know Mm -hmm. that like whereas michael he he could just still be off killing cats somewhere yeah like he's like that's actually um which i think is chilling and which is that first long tracking Mm -hmm. shot when he's back in the wild and halloween like that's scary that's fucking horrifying i'm just walking through trick-or-treaters and just picking at random yeah like danny mcbride i had this quote that danny mcbride said about um approaching michael coming back he said uh i think we're just trying to take it back to what was so good about the original it was just this very simple and just achieved this level of horror that wasn't turning michael myers into something that couldn't be killed i want to be scared by something that i think could really happen i think it's much more horrifying to be scared by someone standing in the shadows while you're taking the trash out which i think is just the, mm-hmm. the at the heart of what michael you know mm-hmm. that like and that the most chilling supernatural thing that we find out the of halloween is he's gone you know after he'd been shot yeah no yeah Um, i do really like that long tracking shot i think it's sort of two long takes and then probably hidden cuts in there but it's like him on the street and he he grab he wanders sort of into somebody's garage and grabs a hammer and walks into this lady's house and sort of off screen you see you hear him presumably bashing in her head grabs her knife we sort of follow him through the house, walks by a baby, or we feel like, is he going to kill this baby, but doesn't oh kill the baby. Oh, my God. And I then... was so ready. I thought he was going to see him stick that knife into that baby. Oh, interesting. I, gonna... I sort Ugh. of knew. I mean, it's a question, because this movie does kill off that little boy that like, kills, is a hunter that wants to be a dancer. dance class boy. Kind of, I was shocked by that. Totally. Um, and you see him make the decision, no. He like, yeah. looks, he thinks about it, and then keeps yeah. going. You yeah. know? Like, and then he goes him. into... Probably the coolest part of it is you see him outside of somebody's house and the lady inside is on the phone and it's getting warned that Michael Myers is on the loose. And then the camera stays sort of at the front of the house and you had seen him standing by the window and he he goes off screen. You don't even quite know what's happening there at all. And then you see him enter into the house behind her and kill her, which really does get to that exactly that quote you read about the somebody standing in the shadows like she's in her house thinking she's safe and closing the blinds and preparing and it's too late he's already there that was all very very effectively chilling i I think the end of that tracking shot too when he's walking back behind the house Mm -hmm. i didn't notice it for it but i think it's just so because he walks by a floodlight i guess on set you know so he walks past so his body disappears but his shadow grows Mm -hmm. as he's off screen and i thought that was like that's that's exactly 
what's scary about Michael. I feel you know mm-hmm. that like he's just a dude walking, but as soon as like he's gone, he, your imagination takes off and he's become something else. He like grows in fear. Um, and it is interesting this idea of you know he is not making his own myth; other people around him are are making it. And yeah. Loomis is doing that all through the first one, being like he's not a man; he's the devil. And you get the Doctor New Loomis doing the same thing in this one. Basically writing this narrative about like Laurie and I guess maybe that doesn't bother me more if the idea is like it's this one crackpot, but also like you have the podcasters, which makes me sort of feel like it's out in the world. Everyone knows like Laurie versus Michael. Yeah. But but I, I do think the idea of the shadow grows, you know, it is interesting to think of like he's just an extremely strong man, but we our fears of him make him into this very big thing. I'm just a man standing in front of a woman <laughs> asking her if I can kill her with my eyes. Oh man. Um, I do. Yeah. I did love that moment with Oscar with the, the motion lights. Mm. And he's just like, you ever wanted a girl so bad and you just couldn't have her, you know, like that kind yeah. of uh, call out. But I, I, I think totally there's also such a funny, weird, resonant moment. <laughs> so weird. Right. The, uh, um, the James Jude Courtney who played, uh, yeah, that played the new Michael mm-hmm. um, has said that his, he's a stunt actor and he said that his a lot of his inspiration for his movements was his cat and his cat and that's michael and in some ways i'd never thought about that before and i'm like that's exactly it you look at a cat I'm like why does the cat do what it does <laughs> you know like yeah. it just has just such disregard i'm gonna knock this it's over but there's a, there's an elegance and like a mystique to it too you know um, wow. it is funny to think of michael as being like in his 60s in this movie i think the movie doesn't fully want you to be thinking about that but it is funny to think like, oh, yeah, old this man, is an older I man that's just. I think it kind of does. You think? I mean, they show they just, you get these little like glimpses of his face, always like just glimpses like in the first one. But but the knowledge of him, I, I guess you're right. It, it kind of does and doesn't because in the prison, it wants you to think about it. But once he's like Michael Myers again, I don't think it wants you to be thinking about it. I wonder if that is sort of like. I think there's something kind of interesting about being like when he puts the mask on, like he's again ageless, he's again mm. timeless, he's again he's mm. just Michael again. He's the shape again. The shape yeah. is back and like age has not slowed him down at all. Can I go on a little mini rant about ages just in general and sort of broadly about Jamie's career? Sure. So, please. In True Lies, as we talked about much a lot on that podcast. She was like 34, 35 with the 14-year-old daughter. So if we're going by the, you know, sort of real-world ages, she would theoretically have had a kid when she was 20. In Halloween H2O, which happens 20 years after the first Halloween in which she was 17, she has a 17-year-old daughter. Again, she would have had to have a daughter. uh, Sorry, she's a 17-year-old son, Josh Hartnett. So she would have had to have a kid when she was about 20 years old. In this movie, Mm -hmm. 40 years since the first killing, she has not only a daughter, but a 17-year-old granddaughter, which again, basically implies that Laurie Strode had a daughter sometime when she was about 20, and then her daughter had a daughter sometime when she was about 20, right? Like, none of the ages Mm -hmm. in this really fully make sense to me. Like, I feel like Judy Greer should be younger, the granddaughter should maybe be younger, or if the fact that they were both young mothers, that should be more relevant to the plot. And then I also think the way they cast Judy Greer, Karen, the way they cast her husband is very weird. That guy is, he's he's about eight years younger than Jamie and eight years older than Judy. Uh-huh. And I was like, why, if this is, you know, Strange. like if, if this has Strange. only been 40 yes. years, right? Like I'm not even going by the actor's real ages. Like this canonically, this has been 40 years old. Lori is 57 years old. That is the canon. She mm-hmm. has had time right. to have a daughter and a granddaughter. There had to have been young people involved. Like, why did they cast the husband so old? Was it supposed to be, you know, Karen 
Like, I could see a thing. Okay, Lori was traumatized, had a daughter young. Her daughter had a weird upbringing, had a daughter young. But then is the implication that she married an older man and that that was involved in this. Do you know what I mean? Like, why did they... Yeah. The whole age... I really was, like, spiraling about trying to figure out why <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis is always cast to play women that had a daughter when they were 20 years old. Well, I think, actually, this movie would be one of the ones where you can eat more easily make an argument that it makes that it like fits within the the realm of the world that like mm-hmm. because they're exploring like generational trauma and I, I just think like it's not far fetched within that world to be right. like, yeah, she although I think like when you lay it up against all these other things, like why she's like why Mark Harmon is like ten years older than her in Freaky right. Friday and you know Well also Judy Greer this. is way mostly too old for this i think mm-hmm. i mean again like whatever i want you to to get work i'm not going to be too hung up about it this but she's like only maybe like 16 years younger than jamie lee curtis i don't know mm. i just felt like the whole way they cast this was very strange to me mm-hmm. and especially that husband character why was he so old did How he old bump he? you guys as being old <laughs> i guess i saw that a little bit yeah I, I i didn't think if i had to think about the casting decision i thought mostly that like Allison was really tall. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I, you know, that, that would that didn't track for me because I, I, because uh, she looks much more mature. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, heightened movies for yeah. some reason. Like it's just there's a progression. If you're taller, you're more yeah, old, you're older. Yeah. Like I feel like you know. Um, but, I had that with Josh Hartnett in Age Two O. I was like, this is a thirty year old yeah. man, even though I think in real life he <laughs> was like nineteen, but he's very tall. And I was like, you are an adult. <laughs> like all those '90s slashers, they're like, we're gonna cast these thirty year old hot people, and they're gonna be teenagers. You know, the the only rule. Emily always tells a story about working on a movie that where they cast like 20 somethings as the high school main characters, but then they used actual high schoolers as the extras. And it was this like horribly that's like mixed. Yeah, you can't do that. You just have to pick one. You can clearly get away with using 25 year olds as high schoolers like throughout all of cinema, but you can't then put them next to actual teenagers or the difference will be so striking. Like children. Um, Yeah. I I will say, Caroline, that my feeling is there is no doubt at all that like the way women are slotted into and out of mother roles in hollywood is generally weird Mm -hmm. although i would not say personally that in this movie i was distracted by it yeah maybe maybe too obviously it's just a symptom of me being obsessed with people's ages and heights actually so i will acknowledge that (laughs) you are but i I think maybe it also speaks to the lack of attention to the three women or the the fact that i wanted more attention to them because i do think if you are a person who had a lot of trauma as a young person and then had a child shortly after that that would really shape you in a very specific way and sort of the movie tossing that off like oh both of these women had children very young that's such an interesting character beat that you could explore and sort of parallel them be like oh you know out of out of Lori's trauma she had a child very young and then out of Karen's desire to live a joyful life she had a child very young like those are those are character setups but the movie sort of the movie only thought as far as we need a teenager it's got to be her granddaughter let's not think about the rest and it sort of is like a missed opportunity I think to dig a little more into the trio of women that I still think should have been the central the central less so than even like the cop right like I feel like we spent so much time on that coach Yost yeah yeah. yeah, Hawkins, that guy. Yeah, and he's yeah. then he kind of just unser. This movie has a lot of people that unceremoniously leave, but but we also invest in them mm-hmm. for a decent amount of time so, before yeah. they leave. Which yeah, which is a slasher trip that like you want to like I'm care wrong. for people, yeah. you know, before they get killed. I you know, I- if the if the if the cop Hawkins, I like Will Patton. I think he's a fun actor. I couldn't tell if that was supposed to be kind of like a bait and switch because I was expecting him and Laurie to like 
team up together at yeah. the end. Mm-hmm. And if it was supposed to be a rug pull that the doctor just kind of offs him, I didn't mind it. It definitely, it definitely helped in wrong footing me on that doctor beat and helped it come out of, out of nowhere. And as I said, I was a fan of that, that beat in the story. But I, I, I do agree with the general. I mean, as, I, as I've said, like, you know, I wanted, I wanted a little bit more of those family things. But, but I do sort of appreciate that the movie also feels like it has, it has Michael Myers' business to attend to. Mm-hmm. You know, in a way where, I mean, this, the, it's, it's a mixed bag because it's like, as if we look at the first film, that's a movie about Laurie. Right. Although, also, it does leave Lori for long stretches of time. Oh yeah, to be with her it's friends on Loomis a lot. It's yeah, on Loomis. You know. Yeah. Which, speaking of her friends, PJ Joel's. I think that she was PJ the uh, totally yeah Souls. Yeah, she's the totally. Uh, oh yeah, totally. And, uh, she was the teacher in this. Oh one. fun. Yeah. Oh the the fate. So that was nice. a fun cameo. Speaking we like a cameo. Her. But I yeah I, I agree with I agree with all of that I think that I think it's going to be interesting to see how kills and then ends after yeah. that maybe fills in more blanks um, because it's it's interesting too this got reshoots you know it was we weren't sure on tone that I'm hoping that kills and ends will be a little more pop, like realized whole thing mm-hmm. without being so maybe disjointed. Do you know about those reshoots at all? I I think it had to do with the ending. I, I read. I read some. It was just a while ago that I read it, um, but just how the, how the ending hit um, audiences were a little lukewarm at first. So they like, if I'm not mistaken, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited for the sequels it, because maybe we're getting more of that character when bringing in characters like Tommy Doyle. Mm-hmm. We're bringing Lindsay back. We're bringing uh, the bully. Uh, what's the kid? Lonnie. Um, Lonnie. We're bringing Lonnie back, and it's going into a very through a mob justice sort of like lens mm-hmm. of like a really angry town. So maybe we're going to get more of that uh, as far as like you know the relationship between Jamie and all of them with, with Karen and how you know yeah. that. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that we're going to get more character with all these other characters in this next movie. But it's also supposed to be the ultimate slasher. So we'll see. yeah, well so. that is interesting that that you know maybe some of what I'm perceiving as the flaws of this movie are the now common flaws of all movies sort of assuming that they're going to get a sequel, right? Like we're in such mm-hmm. an era we'll of figure it out later. everything yeah. is continued. And and as much as, you know, I do think to its credit that you could just watch this movie on its own and enjoy it. We said that before, like that completely makes sense. But I also wonder, and especially having seen the trailer for the new one, if characters like Allison's boyfriend, Cameron, who I found so bizarre in this movie, but is heavily featured Strange. in the trailer for the next one. So it's like, okay, maybe they these things that feel unfinished, maybe that's because in their mind they were really writing to this trilogy structure. And once we sort of see all three, it will feel more cohesive Hopefully, and connected. Hope, you know? But I do think yeah. for this movie alone, like the... That camera, the boyfriend guy, he's so much there at the beginning that we get an absolutely bizarre scene at the Halloween dance where he like kisses another girl, (laughs) throws his girlfriend's phone into like a vat of pudding. Like I could not figure (laughs) out what was happening and then entirely exits the movie and we don't see him again. I was very surprised he didn't come back. I wonder if earlier cuts, I mean, that was shoots or maybe just like edit on the the editing floor. Perhaps other scenes i was like what if he like died in this movie and then they're like nope no time for that or they're like hoping. we want to bring him back i was hoping next- he would, yeah. you know <laughs> like you know it's such like an easy low-hanging fruit of horror movies like if you hate the person don't worry yeah. you're gonna die yeah <laughs> Soon, i found him I, that whole thing was so he was so heavily featured at the beginning and then and similarly the dad dies and everyone like no one even notices I no feel. one cares nobody says ray's no dead cares. nobody's like where's yeah. our dad as we're escaping a serial killer <laughs> did y'all like ray the dad 
I thought he was goofy. Yeah. You know, I, I really that actor, uh, Toby Hoose, Hoose, he's on Dickinson, the Apple TV show, mm. oh. in which Haley Steinfeld plays Emily Dickinson. Which, by the way, phenomenal TV show, like one of the best mm. TV shows of the past few years. Would highly recommend. I that love show. Emily Dickinson. Okay. And a little bit, I mean, talking about spooky, spooky stuff. She's kind of a spooky lady, and they, they um, like Wiz Khalifa plays the personification of death in the first episode. Oh, really, yeah, oh, amazing, very fun show. Anyway, I like Toby Keefe's on that show a lot. Here, I thought he was again. My main holdup was why was he so old comparatively to everyone else? <laughs> Here was a way in which, uh, in which uh, I felt he was a reference to the first Halloween movie. When he spills peanut butter himself, and he says, I need to clean this peanut butter off my hand. And then he <laughs> walks out of a room that has a sink in it. I'm like, there you go. Mystifying impulses about cleaning yourself. A callback to the butter. The That's... infamous butter. If only he oh, had right. just fully taken his pants off the way that... <laughs> Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that girl chose to do it. In reshoots, movie. they got rid of the scene in which Ray spills peanut butter on himself. This and then gets fully ass naked in the kitchen. <laughs> Audiences thought it was "quote unquote" weird oh. for whatever reason. They reshot it. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah. I mean, you could you could argue in some way that like you know you felt so comfortable in that situation that like that, like every shower scene in every horror movie is about a vulnerability. Mm-hmm. You know that like what's the worst possible time for Jason to come in? You know, like, yeah. when I'm in the shower. You know, so like or in speaking uh, of this one, that bathroom scene, which was incredibly unnerving, where the podcast lady goes in oh, to go to the bathroom and is really in the chilling. stall, and Michael comes in and drops teeth, drops teeth. Oh. but just the whole like, thing Jesus, about Michael. that I, that scene, like honestly, that scene probably freaked me out the most of any of the Halloween like kills that i've watched not halloween mm-hmm. kills the movie but kills within the kills halloween, halloween franchise that i have seen for sure that one like the whole setup like somebody coming in that's like acting weird in a bathroom that you're in where you're the only one in there like that's like a real that's a very genuine like real world fear mm-hmm. that i'm sure everyone mm-hmm. has but like maybe particularly women have and yeah the whole way that plays out and like i went from you know when the podcast were podcasters were introduced they were sort of annoying in a way where i was like oh it will be very satisfying to watch them die but i actually found their deaths to be like really horrific and like yeah. scary and not like scary Ooh, yeah. yeah fuck yeah that was a fun kill it was like oh my god this is like very terrifying it's pretty brutal yeah i have with all horror movies and these watching these and then watching these recaps which watching them all last night literally did give me nightmares i like woke up at mm-hmm. five and was like i'm no one's coming oh, no. to kill me but um i'm also in a I'm staying with my parents in New York at a house that I like lying in bed at 5 a.m. I was like, how many doors are this place? And oh I went God. around and I counted in my head and I'm like, there are eight doors into this. It's are basically every single in a cabin room. in the woods? Yeah, I'm, I'm in a house where like basically every single room. Ned, watch out. There's something the behind outside. you. <laughs> 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 every time I will say every time I'm on a Zoom, which is how we do our records, I do feel like there's the potential for it to become one of those like found footage Zoom horror movies that got so trendy. Uh, unfriended? Anybody yeah. any unfriended, unfriended fans on the call? Unfriended is great. If it uh is. um host, has anyone seen host? No, no but I heard year? it's incredible. It's incredible. If you you can get a free trial to shutter okay. whatever, you know, that yeah. it's and watch host. It's it's exactly one hour long because that's how long the Zoom meeting <gasps> is. It's fun. It's so good. Oh. Okay. It's all set. During a pandemic, you know, in a, in a Zoom meeting, it's wonderful. Host. So anyway, that's my plug. Love that. Check the out one host. that I enjoyed was Searching with John Cho, which is not more of a thriller than horror, but is all via computer and is wow. similarly a whole lot of fun. Brian, you're like a Shutter must be your number one streaming platform. We make a joke on my podcast all the time that Shutter is not support you know you know uh, uh, ad- like we don't have any advertising from yeah sponsoring you know uh, and yet I but talk about them well every episode. Yeah, <laughs> certainly. Um, but they're great. So. Well, th- I was going to say the thing about how I have 
weird feelings. And it possibly has to do because I've been watching these recaps that are through the lenses of counting the kills. But I I have weird feelings about the like the awesome kills school of horror movies. Mm. I certainly have an appreciation for practical effects and mm-hmm. inventiveness. But I have weird feelings about how, and I think this probably dials up and down through this Halloween franchise, that part of horror movies is like watching to see like the awesome ways people are going to like suffer and die. Mm-hmm. And I will say that I thought that this movie, Halloween 2018, walked a decent balance where it gave us some of this like ghoulishness with like, you know, I mean, the cops like pumpkin jack-o'-lantern head is probably the most. I was like, okay, I got to give it up. That's an, right. that's an awesome gory image with the like eyes pulled out and all that. I mean, that's that's crazy nasty, but it's like inventive. And, and I think it's just that it doesn't dwell on the like suffering like it doesn't watch those guys like pleading for their lives for a minute i don't know I, it, like there's definitely a decent amount of that I, I don't have a sorted out thought here but i'm like i've been thinking lately about this something that i find slightly troubling about this trend of like us delighting in like the suffering of random innocent people i think mm-hmm. maybe what i'm saying is one of the things is that um I think this movie makes its kills sympathetic. It doesn't have like, oh yeah, I can't wait to watch these. Particularly when it's for like weird moralistic shit. Like I can't wait to watch these like teens who had sex get like pulled apart slowly. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think you're, you're onto something there. I think that there is a, there's a glee to horror, which I feel like it's, Jordan Peele said this one point, but horror lives in our brain very close to comedy. Mm-hmm. And that like mm-hmm. a lot of these kills are just like gags, you know, yeah. that, that you can like appreciate that like, oh my gosh, how that happened was really creative and really fun. And I think it can get mean spirited pretty easy. I think I, I appreciate movies that don't dive into that, you know, yeah. um, I think what's really cool about this and I'm seeing a lot more in, in, in modern, especially candy. Man, I just saw mm-hmm. Candyman last Ooh, week. I don't know if you guys have seen no. that. Oh, I'm scared. There is, but I want to see. It. There's a heightened focus on sound design when bringing <laughs> the kills in, instead of just visual, instead of just like a, you know, popping skulls or whatever. Uh-huh. That like a lot of this movie, you hear this like really intense off-screen stuff, yeah. like with the hammer when you, the long tracking mm-hmm. shot that was really grisly, and it was like of all the kills, I can imagine something much horrible, yeah. more horrible than you know, with those sounds. Um, just like in Candyman without spoiling, but there's like some kills that happen just like in a bathroom scene and you, the whole scene happens outside in this room and and you're just watching this poor woman that's inside a stall and you're hearing everything that's happening out there. And it's like the most grisly part of the movie, but you don't see any mm-hmm. of it, you know? So I feel like going for scares, I, I appreciate like this movie and other like Candyman and some other movies are like leaning into less. I'm going to watch somebody mm-hmm. suffer that I can imagine it. And then the times where you get a little glee, like the Dr. Sartain, there's more glee in like watching him go down mm-hmm. because, he, you know, he's the one that released more Michael. We're, we're, yeah. yeah. Exactly. We're more deserving. And even then, it's it's so over the top. It's, yeah. It's comical. Yeah. It's, his, his head explodes, yeah. you know? It's like, so. Yeah. That yeah, was the thing where I was like, how strong is Michael? <laughs> like, really so strong. That he can yeah. just stop. I actually think he's this like movie strikes a... a, a I don't even know if I mean this as a compliment or a critique or what, but it is an interesting mix of what you see and what you don't, as you were just pointing out, Brian. Like, you know, you have a woman's head getting bashed in that we don't see at all, but then we will literally see a man's head, you know, all of the detail of a man's head getting stomped on. And it is a, right. it is an interesting 
choice to mix it that way. I actually think one thing I appreciated about H2O for as silly as it was is I I think the kills there were very fun and clever in a in a slightly more comedic direction that I actually en- I think I enjoy more. Maybe it makes me feel a little more detached from it. Like I actually think the horror of the reality of what the podcasters go through in that bathroom, it's like, ugh, I I don't know if that brought me entertainment. Like I don't quite Sometimes I struggle with this with horror. Like what is what part of my brain is it supposed to be hitting for the entertainment value? So the podcaster mm-hmm. part I was maybe more of a quest. Like, I I appreciated how much it made me feel scared. I don't know how much it worked as entertainment. Whereas in H2O, they have a lot of silly business about, like, a dumbwaiter and that sort of being involved in all of these elements of, of kills and a fake out involving a, um like, a garbage disposal thing in the sink. And it leaned a little sillier, which allowed me to just sort of strip away the humanity and just enjoy it as entertainment. Right, but then again, right. I don't know if that makes it better or worse as horror, because maybe the point of horror is that you're not just supposed to enjoy it solely as entertainment and you are supposed to sort of feel that you know fear as well yeah yeah i I mean that i think so much of i most slashers i don't find scary for what you're just Mm -hmm. saying that it becomes you know this kind of comical um sort of i think i think it really just comes down to what's the intention of the scene you know that like if if we're trying to scare you i think it gets really easy to get mean-spirited with like these kills of like i'm going to show like this really crazy stuff whereas you know, even though how grisly that bathroom scene was, like, it was pretty tame as far as what sure. we see, you know, that, like, uh, one woman got strangled and the other one got his head bashed. But, like, as far as, like, it, which is brutal to see, but as far as, like, what if we had that same intention, or, like, or if we would have seen the whole scene of the two cops getting, like, the jack-o'-lantern yeah. happen, that would have been over-the-top upsetting, yeah. you yeah. know? But, like... I don't know. I, I guess when I'm, I don't think I have a fully thought realized too, but I think it, it worked for that scene worked for me and scared me that Michael is back. Yes. And then later on I could enjoy him being back a little more. Whereas if he would have just kind of like found his mask and went back to it, I would have been a little. Right. Uh, we you know. needed a more of a proper reintroduction. Mm-hmm. Michael is very big on bashing people's heads in this movie. I actually think more than stabbing he people. He's really, his in his, in his older years, he's transitioned from knife kills to various means of bashing I know we always associate him with a kitchen knife but like most of his kills are he's done a lot of bashing and he's done he's done a lot of strangling too I mean he strangles I guess he strangles two people in the first film that then he partway through stabs as well it somehow fits with his love of bits. He likes very elaborate loves kills, <laughs> and he has a he loves bits. Yeah, he has a strange Post creativity, kills. and to like to kind of come back to this question again of like I think I like the way that this movie treats the question of Michael's motivation that it raises that question but leaves it unanswerable, and yet it gives you more clues to dig into about what makes this guy tick. Well, ultimately, I think most notably through the character of the doctor saying any attempt to get a straight answer on this is a, is a fool's errand Mm -hmm. is, is mortal folly and you will not be able to ultimately solve it, but it gives you things to sink your teeth into like Michael's hand. Yeah. Brian, you really sold me on that, on that point about how Michael is acting more random and it's other forces pulling him towards Lori. I thank you very much. It's everyone else wanting to have him to have have some sort of pattern and path. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a very Um, good call. And they are us. Which, yeah. (laughs) Should we talk a little more about like the ending and like how it relates to Lori and Jamie Lee's, Jamie's character and I I don't know. I feel like we all really responded very positively to that part of the movie. So like what, Mm -hmm. what elements did we enjoy the most about it? I can, I I can admit on here that rewatching it 
while in a very stressful like movie yes. kind of it was scary and all that and rewatching that end scene is so cathartic mm-hmm. in such a, such an amazing way um for me that like once they throw that you know torch in and it's literally exercising all these demons you know that you're holding on to i think it's such a great release that most horror movies just kind of dream of getting yeah. you know um so, and i think that's great and what this is also on the inverse what i love about horror movies so much is they're rarely final like at the end we mm. still at the end of credits we still hear the michael breathing. breathing we know it's coming which i feel like makes it more real in a mm. way that like it, it, especially with Lori, her problems aren't done yeah. you know that like even though she burned michael it's not like oh i'm now a I'm cured you know, of all of my trauma. I'm cured. I'm done. Like that's that's. I think that's the most. Even though it's like parodied and made fun of in horror movies, I feel like it's the most honest part about them. Mm-hmm. Is like, yeah, but like it's not gonna. This isn't done, and that's the kind of the scariest part about mm-hmm. them. You know, that's what I loved about the ending. It was just what a great release of kind of triumph. Yeah, um, and they really, even though you know necessarily, and like the first movie, he and Lori are not together through most of it. I mean, they have a couple close calls. I love when she sees him mm-hmm. up in the window and is like, oh, fuck me, it's him, and shoots at the mirror. But they get to spend some time in the end with that painful, tense, long cat and mouse like hunt around the house with the shotgun. That scene goes on so long, but it never lets the air out. I mean, the whole time. I mean, it's like, is is thinking of that kind of scene probably hard to come up with no it's like she's looking for him she doesn't know where he's going to be but executing it that well i think is impressive and that's acting and directing although i i did take a note when she checked like the first of four rooms i wrote down if i were michael myers i would simply go hide in the creepy room full of mannequins which i had noticed earlier for sure (laughs) and of course that is what he does but it is i mean it's it's just tense and exciting and it leaves you desperately wanting a release and you you do get that delicious like you feel it start to turn when she gets up from the lawn and yes. which i referenced earlier such a good moment a really satisfying moment and then it's so funny yeah it is yeah and there's and there's a level of Lori is on top of things that it was carried over from the first movie too that as a babysitter she did a very good job of oh, getting those kids yes. yeah so, but like in most horror movies they're you know it, it's it's kind of it's goofy how inept they are at handling yeah. situations but Lori was very on top of it and I feel like just like this going through room to room and then locking the door mm-hmm. behind mm. her of like I'm not gonna get ambushed this mm-hmm. way is like I really appreciated how well even though it was, it was an obsession that really ruined her life it was a well thought out obsession yeah that, you know, see I I will say, I think for maybe the first like 10 minutes or so of the final battle, probably less than 10 minutes, the first couple minutes of the final battle, there were moments where I was like, Lori, I feel like your plan should have been better. I was kind of getting annoyed at the, you know, she had an incredibly elaborate door that was like, I've thought through every element of how I could be safe, except for the fact that Michael just put his two hands immediately through these windows and then <laughs> yeah, grabbed my right? throat because I stood in the one worst place I could have possibly stood. The worst possible. That yeah. was sort of bugging me. And actually some of how she was like, I was like, okay, you're going through room to room. That's great, but it's so dark. And I don't know, maybe maybe he was supposed to have cut the power, but I was getting frustrated and it was sort of building up to the point of the Judy Greer scene where she's sort of seeming like she's crying and she's like, I can't do it. I can't do it. But then as soon as they did the like gotcha turn, I was like, okay, maybe the movie was more in on this than I was giving it credit for and was purposefully building up a little bit of a sense of frustration so that the final moments, which are so, so good, would feel even more cathartic. It does mm-hmm. mean that Lori, like she took a lot of gambles in terms of if her entire plan was like lure Michael to the basement trap and burn him. There were 
I don't know if her play, like, she took a lot of risks in terms of like, oh, sure. and at this point, if he pushes me off the balcony, hopefully I'll just survive. And yeah, I don't really have a real. backup plan if he doesn't, if I don't survive. Well, this. she had shutters for a lot of the doors. I think you could argue that. And I do have this thing where, like, when there's a very satisfying plan comes together, like everything the Joker does in The Dark Knight, I'm like, how did you know that they <laughs> would do <laughs> yeah, this, then this, then this, then this? But it's like, because, you know, it's very compelling to watch. You kind of forgive it. I actually do think this, you could sort of argue like, well, she had gas mains running through the house and she had all these like electric shutters. Now I'm just, I'm just like debating the backstory, which I don't, yes. I don't need to do. I think I, you're right that it, it does like play with your expectations a little bit along where you're like, uh. And they kind of explain it too. It might just be kind of a, a cop out catch hall sort of thing. But I mean, she's not looking to like hide from, he's, she's trying to trap him. Right. So like all these, she's not trying to, she could very easily in that house completely barricade her and her family away and they'd be safe for the rest of the night yeah. while, you know, someone else. But the, the whole the whole point of that whole compound was her to get a confrontation. So I feel like all these moments yes. of like maybe some making risks were like she wanted those, you know, in a way that like the, the whole point of like revisiting this trauma was to actually face off with Michael, not to hide right. from him. I mean, she does way. say that it, it, wild line where she's like, I pray every night that he'll escape so I can finally face off with him again. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> Lori, Jesus. like, and the cop's like, that was a dumb thing yeah, to do. Yeah. <laughs> That's a dumb thing to pray for. It just feels like she should have, as soon as she knew he was in the house, like pushed the button that made all of the trap doors fall so that whatever room he was in, he was trapped. Do you know what I mean? There's a little, I can, yeah, I can totally. pit, I can mm-hmm. pick nits within this, but the moment, the gotcha moment into the, he's in the basement, into the cage shuts, into the like, it's not a, it's not a cage, it's a trap, like into right. the goodbye Michael burning it all like that part is all like fuck yeah this is so cool that I am mostly willing to forgive maybe some of the questionable narrative choices that were made to get there yeah the payoff is good enough yeah the thing that I was irritated by that then the payoff satisfied me with was I have a chip on my shoulder about the trope of like stop fighting it just pick up the gun that's like a real trope in a lot of things that are like just admit that guns are the best way to solve the problem there's like, there was this, this is such a weird poll, but there was this movie called The Rundown with The Rock way back in like when he was first doing his very earliest movies. And all through the movie, he's like, people would be like, take a gun and help. He's like, I don't, I don't like who I become around guns. And I was like, this is such a cool subversion of action movies. And it was actually setting up for the final scene. He like, it was like, I become an awesome person when I pick up guns and he like shoots like a million henchmen. And so I just think there's, there is a thing where it's, which is like, it was the way they scored the moment where like Karen turns and like sees her like special gun. Mm-hmm. It like plays like cool music that's like just take it, just admit that you need the gun in this situation. Mm-hmm. And these movies that's so that's me thinking about the real world and like these movies do create narratives create people's impressions of truth and these kind of things will create the impression that like you just need a gun because Sometimes serial killers come into your home. That's why we have the Second Amendment. Right. But, is there a an unintentional yeah. NRA propaganda element and, to Well, it's and we I mean, this did come up as well with Quiet Place. I think it's tricky. Horror yeah. movies, unfortunately, like I love them as entertainment. They do sometimes like feed into those sort of like stand your ground, defend your home, like be mm-hmm. ready for anything. You can't trust people. I mean, I you know, H.P. Lovecraft, I think, you know, he's one of the greatest horror writers ever, was also just like a flaming racist. And those two things were like, yeah, this guy, I think it was Victor Laval who wrote this book called um, 
the Ballad of Black Tom. He's a mm-hmm. African American Lovecraftian horror writer, so he's clearly spent lots of his time like grappling with that. And he's like, the common thread there is that Lovecraft was afraid of everyone and and everything, and it's what made his stories extremely effective, but also mm-hmm. made him of being afraid of everyone like results in a mindset that I think is very dangerous. Yes. Anyway, yeah. I, I similarly the pacing and acting and setup of the gotcha moment, I was like, all right, I'm I'm over it. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, I'm able to separate, you know, horror and, you know, sci-fi or whatever. I'm able to separate it as like, this is a fantasy world where I don't mind people arming themselves because they're arming themselves against literal <laughs> monsters right. that can't be killed. Right. I think you're right that pe- people could be watching without that ability to separate those two things. But for me, I actually find it very satisfying when there is a character who is deemed like their anxieties are written off as being unnecessary. And then in the end, they're validated. Maybe this is because I'm a very anxious person. So whatever my anxieties come true, I'm like, I tried to warn you all. Right, and I do right. find it very satisfying that in this movie, similar to T2, everyone's just like, Lori, you're crazy. This is not an issue at all. And then at the end, they're like, wow, Lori, we're so glad you prepared for all of this because <laughs> everything you thought was correct and you are vindicated and validated in every way. Absolutely. I love that too. I love, I, you were talking about guns and horror movies too. And, and there was a, a book I just recently read called The Final Girl Support Group. Um, and they had a conversation in there about why guns are so rare with killers in horror movies. Mm. And um, and it's because there, it's for an audience that you have to care. Each one has to matter. Death has to matter. You know, it, it was the argument this book was mm-hmm. making. And that like if Michael was just going around with like an assault rifle, it, it's not, it's horrific and, you know, like... Uh, in our real world, that's scary. And it, what's what's scary about it is how little a bigger number means, you know, in a horror movie versus one than another than mm-hmm. another, you know, that like in Halloween one, four people we see die, yeah. including the sister five. And we think it's like the most horrific night, you know, but like, I don't know. It, it, I don't have a, it's just an interesting thing to point mm-hmm. out that like this gun, this, even this movie, which she's got like hundreds of guns in that basement. They use like two of them, the whole movie, mm-hmm. you know, that like, it is funny at the beginning when her one friend, Vicky's boyfriend, is like, well, just a couple people got killed. It's not a big deal. And I was like, right. what? <laughs> I get that they were trying, to, they were kind of trying to write like a joke about, you know, woke, like teens being so woke that they're like, they're all their frame of reference is wild. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I was like, I don't think kids would actually speak like this. Like, what an absolutely wild thing to have him say. I don't know. Teens say some wild shit. <laughs> I guess so. They Did do. you know that guy is um, Susan Sarandon's son? Really? Yeah, I just saw him in some other movie oh recently. Gosh. I looked him up, and then he was in here. Well, when we do, uh, when we do him on roll calling, it will be another story <laughs> of nepotism. A, that'll be the next arc. Yeah, right? yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Brian, can I ask what do you think is the scariest like horror franchise or horror movie? Because you said that you you think slashers are not always the scariest. No, I think um, I think Michael is scary and is has been misused so much. Mm. I think Michael is very scary. Mm-hmm. I think that. Early Nightmare on Elm Street was very scary, you know, just like um, Texas Chainsaw is is horrifying and just in a, in a fam, you know, backwoods family way. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the, 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 the horror that I feel like really kind of sticks with me, though, is like when logic doesn't quite make sense or I don't know how to describe this, but I just saw the um, the Night House a few weeks ago. And it deals with a, you know, a, a woman that that is grieving and uh, her husband that has passed. And there is this alternate kind of plane on top of her that they introduce that that this nothingness is kind of seeping into. And it's kind of it's almost Lovecraftian that that kind of stuff that, that makes me think like 
um, that I I really have no power over that. That Lovecraft is this cosmic horror that like, I don't know. I I think I'm just rambling of what I think is scary. I think that I think Michael's scary. I think cosmic horror is terrifying. I think that um, I'm reading this book right now where they just find a a door in the wall that wasn't there before that it goes to somewhere. And I'm like, that's horrible. Yeah, (laughs) that's like that's that will keep me at Michael in in Jason don't really keep me up but just waking up and that was a new door in yeah your room, that, that's really upsetting i do find so. it so interesting how you know again as somebody that's more of a horror novice like it is really interesting that that within the broader horror genre there's so many subgenres, and i feel like everyone finds their one that they think is fun versus actually scares them versus they just think right. it's intellectually interesting like it is such a broad i don't know it does make genre. me sort of lament for the the halloween anthological franchise we never got mm-hmm. oh totally I think we could have gotten some really good Anybody, uh, Brian, are you a fan of Trick or Treat? I love Trick or Treat. It's my favorite. Trick or Treat is so good. It's so good. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. The sequel will one day maybe happen. I'm, I'm <laughs> waiting for it. I need four more stories. Right? And uh, he's uh, he's been he was busy with uh, Kong or uh, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and now he's free. Oh, and, and what's the that's hold up? The same you know? guy. Oh, okay, yeah. It's the same same director. Yeah. So if he's listening. Michael, what's the holdup? Well, you got some trick or treat fans on the pod. We would love to <laughs> love to get some more. Any other things from this movie we want to shout out? One that I I love the um, the line from early on: Michael Myers murdered five people, and he's a human being. We have to understand. I'm twice divorced, and I'm a basket case. Mm-hmm. This little moment with the podcasters of the way. I mean, this is sort of looking at like fascination with psychopaths versus sexism. But also, I think we see this a lot. It's like that, 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 that sort of like double standard in media reporting mm-hmm. and sort of taking media to task for their role in inflating these narratives, which, as you said, was kind of a kind of ended up becoming sort of a dropped thread in this, but was an interesting one to have at first. Yeah, I think it's a credit to Jamie Lee Curtis's performance that, you know, she could have played, she could have leaned into the Laurie as a crazy prepper of it all. She could have given a mm-hmm. much more frenetic performance in a way that when people kept telling her she was paranoid i think we as the audience would be like oh yeah she is seeming paranoid but actually her choice to play laurie so calmly and rationally it really drives home the like disparity between how people talk about her and how she actually acts because everyone's like oh Mm -hmm. you're a crazy old grandma like you're you're not acting normally but she is so calm in that scene with the podcasters where she's like yes the things you're talking about you know the way you're trying to to spin this narrative of my life is not accurate. And she's so calm and rational and clearly in a good mindset, you know, maybe not, maybe not the most emotionally healthy, but like there's a, there, she's a rational person and it's people's refusal to see that in her that I think then makes it so satisfying in the end when she is proven correct yeah. ultimately. Yeah. And that obsession that she has is so singular with just Mike, one instance, Michael cutting back and coming out, coming back to Haddonfield, you know, that's the situation that it's not a world. She's not, I don't think she's too scared of the world in that mm-hmm. situation when she takes the money from the podcasters and gives it to Allison saying, go to Mexico, yeah. do whatever. That, yeah. like, she's yeah. not like the world out there is scary. It's what could happen near Smith's Grove Sanitarium with Michael. That's what's right. to be scared about. Yeah. And it is, you know, like at one point. The daughter, Karen, and sort of trying to explain, you know, she's trying to get the, basically get her daughter to be like, oh, grandma's not going to come. She's agoraphobic. And we hear that and we're like, okay, maybe she is agoraphobic. But then the next scene is her visiting the granddaughter at the school. And even there you see how the narratives of who Lori is and how she's responding, you know, there's an unreliable narrator aspect to it. That exactly as you're saying, she's not quite as paranoid as people are painting her out to be. Her fears are very grounded in. 
<laughs> something that happened. Something that happened. happened. Yeah. And, you know, even to the point of like, oh, Michael's being transferred that night. Like, that's a very, there's a concrete thing she is pointing to as here's a danger point that, again, is ultimately proved to be yeah. correct. Although I do yeah. think you see at the scene where she shows up for dinner and like immediately yeah. like chugs Ray's wine and then has this this little freak out you you do get the sense i think of it as like she like whiplashed karen Mm -hmm. she basically was like you i do feel like you can get a sort of whiff of how like maybe karen's adolescence was like really torturous and Mm -hmm. that you know Lori's trying to sort of make amends for or just like deal with having done Mm -hmm. that but karen's like yeah you don't really get it it was like i was actually it was an abusive Mm -hmm. relationship because of this idea of like well if i if i fuck you up but i make you safe then that's my line in the sand. Yeah, I did like that line too, where she was like, well, I mean, yeah, she basically says that. She's like, well, if I fucked her up emotionally, but she manages to live, it will have been worth it. And you're like, that's probably not the right thing to say, but I kind of understand where you're coming from as well. It's a it's a dynamic, debatable issue. It's yeah. complicated. And I will say, you know, I think I think H2O, I find the ending of H2O, which is our, our other big Lori Michael confrontation, I think I find that one just more satisfying in terms of how it's staged and stuff. But I also think that within that movie, the performance that Jamie Lee Curtis is giving is a little bit more, she feels like Jamie Lee Curtis. She has the famous Jamie Lee Curtis haircut. She has some of that like spunky, fun energy. And it fits within sort of, you know, the the Fish Called Wanda's and Freaky Fridays. Like it, it sort of fits more within that side of her mm-hmm. as an actor, I think. Whereas I think in Halloween 2018, it feels like she is giving a real like character performance as Lori. And this is a very specific take on Lori. It's not just, oh, this is Lori grown up and she's just a normal lady. And I appreciate that we get to see like how much thought and care she's put into this as a performance and sort of how this evolution of the character has happened. I think that's the strongest element of 2018 in comparison to H2O. And again, as we keep saying, yeah. I'm excited to see that explored in the next two. Yeah, and because this is a Jamie Lee Curtis mm-hmm. episode, you know, that like, I think it's also a testament that her resurgence is kind of a character actor and a really good yeah. character actor. You know, that like her her performance in Knives Out was a specific character. This is a very specific take on Laurie. That, and, it's, and she's flourishing, I feel like. Mm-hmm. That, like Freaky Friday was a very, <laughs> you know, she was able to be this character. I think that's... Uh, maybe where she excels. Yeah, really you're so right. Maybe she is a little more of a character actor than we sometimes think of her as, or than how she's discussed. Yeah, you know? yeah. What a fascinating career. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm looking forward to the next chapter. And she, you know, she's she continues to have her her children's book writing career. I mean, that's been a big part of her life. She, I believe, is working on a script. And I read this in one of the interviews that we read, and I can no longer remember what she's working on, but she is, I think, planning to write and direct a film, which will be a first for her, having acted her whole life. But in I do remember this this quote I did write down from the AARP interview with her, which was, I wake up every day at 4 a.m. and have so much on my mind, she explains. I'm just so crazy excited and creative right now, and I don't want to squander any of it. So with, I love that. with any luck, we'll be, we'll be seeing more of her. I do think maybe of everyone that we've covered on this podcast, well, I was going to say she's the one I want to hang out with the most, which I do think maybe I want to <laughs> hang out with Dev Patel in a different way than I want to hang out with Jamie Lee Curtis. But I live, I feel like hanging out with Jamie Lee Curtis would be so fun. Don't you feel like just like go out for wine with her? Absolutely. And, well, she would be sober, but go out for coffee with her and just, you know, 
chat about life and get her perspective on things. She's such a fun person. Great brunch yeah. with her. Oh you know? yeah. I think yeah. I think a dinner at uh at the Curtis guest house could be a real Oh my god, blast. what a dream. Yeah. Any other Jamie Lee Curtis performances we want to shout out? I mean, we've talked about a number of her of her things, but are there any other I mean, I'll just say I really enjoyed H2O. <laughs> like Great. I keep saying that, but like I really had a lot of fun. If you go in, I think knowing it's that very, you know, more campy 90s style, there's a lot of fun to watching that version of Lori take on that version of Michael. Yeah, I agree. Cool. Yeah, I think uh, she was after Halloween. She did a number of other yeah. movies, including The Fog, which I adore The Fog. And I think that she was more of a character in that one mm. versus the lead, which I think flourished. But yeah, I think that's another one I think of. And Knives Out. I think Knives mm-hmm. Out, she was just a total joy in that one. Yeah. So with that, I think it is probably time for us to close one door and open a new one. Close the secret oh. kitchen island <laughs> trap door. With Jamie Lee Curtis. I was going to say close the door from that book Brian was reading where the door just appears. Close the secret and we're going to open a new mysterious door in our wall. You want to tell us about the door we're going through, Caroline, as we go into our fifth roll calling cycle? It's a very different door this time. We sort of wanted to to take a different kind of swerve. We're going back to the golden age of Hollywood and we are going to cover James Dean, who American icon passed away very, very young and so only made three movies. So we're going to cover, we're going to do sort of a shorter mini series and look at someone's entire filmography that while incredibly short, I think is hugely influential still to this day. Uh, I'm really excited about that. We're going to start with his performance as Jim Stark in 1955's Rebel Without a Cause, which I think is probably his most iconic performance and one of my favorite movies. So I am super excited to do that one. That sounds really fun. I'm excited to listen. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this sort of different mode for us to be in, to go mm-hmm. to go to a totally different era of filmmaking and just get into the acting of it all. At a time in which, yeah, my impression, I'm definitely going to be the uh, James Dean novice here. I've only seen Rebel Without a Cause. I've never seen any of his other movies. And that film I've only seen once. But I get the impression that he was uh, he was changing the acting game in a way. Yeah, a fascinating turning point, I think, in in how acting as a craft was done. Yeah. He's sort of the bridge between like Jamie Lee Curtis's parents, like their style of acting and her style of acting. Do you know mm. what I mean? Like James Dean is the fulcrum there between how we got from one to the other. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to that, we are going to say a thank you and a goodbye to Jamie Lee Curtis and also a sincere thank you to Brian. Thank you so much for coming on for this episode. This was super fun. Thank you very much for having me. Always down to talk about Halloween. Thank you for teaching us so much about this franchise that even though I tried to watch a good chunk of it, I still feel like I have barely scratched the surface of what it is. It's super fun. I, it's it's fun, like in any franchise, seeing different people's takes on it and different... It, it's, it's like I love in comics and franchises of people having four movies and having to work within those limitations and what creative ways they can work their way out of it or expand, I think is really fun. So... Sometimes it doesn't work, but oftentimes it's a great, you know, viewing experience. Yeah. Maybe in 2022, we'll have to have you back for Halloween Ends and we'll like revisit Jamie's The End of This Trilogy. We love it. I love it. Put it on the books. It's all better. So Brian, where can our listeners go find more of you and your your thoughts? Yeah, uh, I've got a podcast called The Happy Harvest Horror Show. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, We also, in in a... Uh, adjacent to the podcast we have a book club that we read a spooky book every month so if you uh 
you're not sick of me hearing talk about horror and want to join, you can uh, join us on that. Um, it's a, but, it's uh, a yeah. fantastic podcast. Winnet and I were, were saying off mic how much we enjoy it. And we will say, so previous guest, Walsh Trimble, has been on a couple episodes with you. So if you want to hear two of our guests <laughs> unite, talk about fun, thi- fun things ranging from 1% horror to rides at Disney World to, I mean, you guys just like, I love how diverse the things you cover are it's not like you're like oh we're just going to go through horror movies you were looking at the entire canon of like spooky just culture. spooky culture yeah we've got episodes on the pumpkin spice latte <laughs> to like um you know you did a vincent uh, price one recently right we got a vincent price one we do uh you know appreciation that's probably going to become a series we'll get christopher lee probably mm-hmm. i listened to the scary so, batman episode recently because I, I just seek out batman content so that was fun in the conjuring universe I'm glad. thank you thank you all both for for, for listening. And you yeah. guys are, are good at, I feel like for whatever level of horror fan you are, you can find something in your podcast. You're good. You know, you're you're not just for the hardcore horror aficionados. You have, again, sure, sure. gateways like your pumpkin spice lattes for maybe people that are more like me and need yeah, a little absolutely. bit more of a gateway. And should we tease that we have been planning in the works, Ned and I making a, a guest appearance on, on the Happy Harvest Horror Show? Yeah, please tease away. I think that was the that tease. That was the tease. Right? Yeah. So check <laughs> out if you want to hear net, if you want to hear an- this trio again, tune in for another Coming spooky soon. season fave. Yeah, we've got a we've got a number of spooky Halloween time, you know, because that's we're a Halloween podcast, you know, spooky. So we gotta <laughs> <laughs> we gotta put, hit the gas a bit. We're, we're in the season. It is September fifth. There is no time like the present to start tuning into the Happy Harvest Horror Show. So yeah, so I hope you join us. And I'm excited to see and you know, listen to the James Dean podcast. I'm a huge fan of as his role calling. My first l- episode I listened to was the American Psycho mm. one, which is such a fun episode. We did so. kind of start with a horror, at least horror adjacent. I kind of forgot that we did that. <laughs> did, yeah. And I haven't seen that movie in, num- in a number of years. And so listening to that, I was like, man, that movie was messed up. Yeah, <laughs> messed up. <laughs> and really good. Yeah, I'm glad you weren't shaking your fist at your uh, podcast listening device and saying, these morons. <laughs> no, I love I love it. Yes, I love it. It's, it's fun hearing, especially with the Halloween episode coming in fresh and hear two mm-hmm. people that hadn't you know or at least caroline yeah hadn't seen it before uh it was really fascinating to hear um so yeah i'm excited to listen to more with james dean and uh, i can't wait to have you guys on yeah. our show for uh i can't oh, wait you know. either what could All it be very exciting things on the horizon onwards and upwards onwards and upwards roll calling is produced and recorded by us ned baker and caroline Sita. our theme music was created by patrick buddy and our logo was designed by nick wanserski you can follow us on Twitter at RollCalling and email us at RollCalling at gmail.com. That's Roll, R-O-L-E. If you rate and review our show, we really appreciate that. So next week, we'll be going back to 1955 for Rebel Without a Cause. Until then. Hi, we're uh, uh, here to speak about Michael Myers. We're recording a podcast.